0: Welcome to Vascular Voices, the podcast of Vascular Disease Management, the peer-reviewed online journal that educates readers on the latest advancements in endovascular treatment strategies. In this episode, interventional cardiologist Dr. Pradip Nair speaks with Mary Yost, president of the Sage Group, about her newly published research on the current prevalence of peripheral arterial disease in the United States, including a new method that calculates PAD by age and glucose status.
1: Hello, everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. And we have a very important topic we're going to be discussing related to the prevalence of PAD in the contemporary era. And I'm privileged to have Mary Yost, who most, many of us, all of us in the endovascular world know uh, quite well, who has taught us a great deal about uh, peripheral artery disease, uh, both epidemiologically and from a societal impact and economic impact but what I would like to do is introduce uh, Mary, who uh, has spearheaded our ability to understand current data as it relates to PAD, current prevalence. So Mary, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And, and so Mary, I, I want, just for some of the audience who may be listening for the first time and uh, may not have as much background in endovasc- in the endovascular space, I know you studied at the University of California in Berkeley as an economist. Can you take us through your trajectory of how you ended up focusing your career on peripheral uh, vascular disease?
2: It was a long and circuitous route. I ended up, after I got got an MBA in finance, rather than finishing my PhD in economics, and then I, I went into banking. That didn't last long. I got into uh, being an analyst. Ended up as a Wall Street analyst, following different healthcare groups. But at the end of my career, specialized in medical devices, and was there when CORTIS was, when the drug-eluting stent for coronary was first. Um, it was still in research, and so then I ended up doing a few other things, and. Because of a company I was invested in, I don't know if you recall brachytherapy, but there were several brachytherapy companies. This was a startup company. They started talking about this huge opportunity in the SFA. And I had never heard of that. I had never heard of any opportunity in the legs. All we knew back in those days was the heart. And that's sort of how it started. And I became so fascinated with the area because there was, this, this goes back over 20 years. There was so little data and it was hard to find and it just, I love doing research. So that's how it all started.
1: Thank you, Mary. Now you started the SAGE group over 20 years ago now.
2: Correct, and correct,
1: the, the we did. Focus of the SAGE group, uh, I'll let you uh, let the audience know.
2: Okay, we, we started out with PID and later on moved to venous disease, both chronic and acute and we only look at the legs, there's tons of data on the heart, there's tons of data on the carotids, on stroke, there is still a huge lack of research and understanding of what's going on in the legs and a lack of focus, and if I might, I will just use that as a way to bring in the PAD numbers. What we found is that the, the disease has consistently been underestimated, and we're doing a big disservice by underestimating the disease, because then we are underestimating the impact on patients, the morbidity and the mortality. We're underestimating the economic impact in particular. We do recently have good data on per patient costs, and PAD patients, by the way, cost more than matched controls. Uh, patients in Medicare, PAD CLI patients in Medicare, cost significantly more, et cetera. So by underestimating we're, the numbers, with this disease, we are underestimating the impact of the disease on patients and the economy.
1: So eight to 12 million, you know, Mary, I, uh, that's the number that's still commonly quoted in, in literature today. And, you know, you know, I know that this data stems back to a, a population in an era still in the 20th century. And you know, I think what you do, what we all know, it's it, 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 what we know is common sense, you help to bring to fruition because uh, quite honestly, we know that eight to 12 million is a gross underestimate of our true numbers. So this brings us to your article, which we're going to discuss today, the current U.S. prevalence of peripheral artery disease. So let's talk about this. So, you know, we just mentioned eight to 12 million. You know, this is coming back from the PARTNERS trial, the, the, the CRICI study with a population uh, looking back previous to 1995. Uh, You want to talk a little bit about that and and why those numbers may not uh, serve us well today as far as an accurate assessment?
2: That's true. And and it was gratifying to see that there were several recent articles of cardiovascular experts that also pointed out that these numbers appear to be outdated. The Crickey partners numbers, and I call them that because the numbers were published, the 8 to 12 million, was published in the partner study, but it had nothing, those numbers had nothing to do with that study, which was a very good study. So it was the Crickey San Diego study, and what they did is they looked at a little over 600 white, primarily white, upper middle class individuals, in San Diego, and Orange County, who had who attended a lipid clinic, and they had a restrictive definition of PAD, which is ABI less than 0.8. Typically, we use less than 0.9, and even less than 0.9 will underestimate because of the non-compressible arteries in people with diabetes and CKD in particular. And then there were some other some other uh, factors that they other restrictions they put on it it was a very good study they, they found that the overall prevalence in those ages 40 and over was 11.7% and then they also broke it down by age and it appears that those that the 8 to 12 million was calculated based on the us population circa 1995 and we have gone back and calculated our numbers based on the 95 population and come out with 11 million. So it's right in that range. The key, the key point here is that 1995 is almost 30 years ago. And in that time frame, the population has aged and become significantly more diabetic, massively diabetic. And those are two key risk factors for PAD. And so it, it it definitely appears that 1995 numbers just don't compute to 2020 numbers, they just don't match.
1: Yeah, I think that's an extremely valid point, Uh, you know. Today, number one risk factor for developing peripheral artery disease, I would say, is diabetes mellitus. Uh, you have at least a two to three time fold increased risk of developing it. Uh, also smoking, I mean, smoking, right. but the po- number of smokers has decreased except in young younger females, uh, but you still have a two times increased risk of smoke uh, with a PAD developing with smoking. And it takes longer for that risk to after cessation to drop down. But uh, I think our aging population uh, the, the number of pa- people in our population with diabetes has exploded. And as a result, you know, in my practice, I am seeing uh, a lot of PAD, subclinical, asymptomatic. Right. And You know, our focus is to diagnose it. We know to look for it. But that's the problem that's going on in our society is we're still, even today, failing to recognize peripheral artery disease as an entity that can lead to significant morbidity and mortality. And I'll say it may not be from dying of the leg disease, but you know, I know this is a polyvascular disease that can lead to a lot of sequela, whether it be in the brain or the heart. So identifying, you can put your foot on the pulse and I would say that uh, being able to identify it is critically important. So I think uh, we established that we have work to do and we can get a better number of peripheral artery disease in the current era. So let's get right into your into your paper. So you utilized a modality, okay, called the diabetes method. We just mentioned how diabetes and peripheral artery disease go hand in hand, essentially. Can you te- walk us through the diabetes method now? I, I believe this is something you've been developing now for over a decade, am I wrong? Is it? Uh,
2: it, it, it originally was back to 2007. Because of my background, I always want to do my own numbers. I mean, that's sort of like what you do as an analyst, and and so I I started playing around with different ways to estimate PAD, and I actually looked at using smoking as as a risk factor, but the prevalent you know the the number of people that smoke has gone way down. Plus, there wasn't good enough data, and I'll come back to that. I looked at hypertension. I focused on age for the obvious reason, that it's a huge risk factor. And I focused on diabetes because of its risk factor impact, but also because we have really good data on diabetes, not just in the US, but worldwide. And we've, we've used this method to estimate PAD in numerous countries. And we also have pretty good data not as good as the diabetes data, but we have good data on the prevalence of PAD by glucose category. And so that's that's how this all started. So to, to talk about exactly what we did and how we did it, and I'll try and keep a big picture focus here. What we do is we look at the population ages 45 to 64 and 65 and older using US Census Bureau data. And we separate that population into both those two populations in, into glucose categories, diabetes, both diagnosed and undiagnosed, pre-diabetes, which is IFG, and then normal glucose. And then we look at the percent prevalence of PAD in each of those glucose categories. Now we have really good data from the cardiovascular health study, which looked at those age 65 and older. And and we use that specific data to calculate the numbers for those 65 and older.
1: And and Mary, the cardiovascular health study utilized ABIs less than 0.9, is that correct?
2: Well, they use use two measures, ABI less than 0.9 and the the rose claudication questionnaire. So you're knowing this goes way back. The study was published no one. That was for, that was for subclinical disease. But they looked at clinical disease in terms of patient history, and in terms of whether they had had surgery. Now, back in those days, we didn't do a lot of endovascular, so that's why they focused on the surgery.
1: And, and also, you're <laughs> diabetes mellitus status was based upon the NHANES study, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. Is that correct? Is that where you got? The-
2: right, right. Yes. that that and, and I tried to keep it contemporary with the population that I'm looking at. So if you're calculating 1995, you want to look at the U.S. population, circa 19, and NHANES, that would coordinate with that time frame. You don't want to look at current. And Haynes glucose data.
1: Got it. Okay. And then we're on to the 45 to 64-year-old age group. Now, we use cardiovascular health study to get the prevalence of PAD in that population. And now, as I understand it, you looked at nine different studies to garner a prevalence in that age group, or am I?
2: Yeah, those unfortunately had to be estimated because there wasn't an equivalent to the CHS study. So we evaluated and continue to evaluate, every time I look at these numbers, the prevalence of PAD by glucose status. And so again, those numbers are estimated.
1: Got it. And so tell us what you found. uh, When you separate these groups by diabetes classification, diabetic, pre-diabetic, normal glucose status, you're able to stratify their prevalence of PAD within these groups Based upon data that's that's available publicly, uh, what are you finding?
2: Okay, what what we found is, and these were back calculations from the CHS, in the 65 and older age group, 31% of those with diabetes had PAD. Now they had they actually looked at the percents for male and female, and interestingly. It was a higher percentage for female, it was 33% and 29% for males. I think that's important because we still see uh, statements that this is a male disease and women don't have it. In the normal glucose and the um, prediabetes, we used, I believe 11%. And again, these are back calculations based based on the percents in in the male and female populations. Then in those 45 to 64, we employed 27%, again, based on numerous studies, prevalence of PAD in diabetics, and I believe it was around 10% in, it was, I can't remember exact numbers, 10, 11% for pre-diabetes and for normal glucose.
1: Okay. You know, I in the um, evaluation, I was when I was trying to look at it, I, I'm trying to remember, were women well-represented in this group?
2: In the CHS, I think they were pretty well represented. And they were in the, the studies that I looked at or that I reviewed for the 45 to 64 age group. Got it. Right. And, and, and again, when, when just, this, is, this was fascinating to me. I went back and looked at the CHS again recently because we were having we had this conversation. And what I found was that women 65 and older, had a very low prevalence of clinical disease, but a very high prevalence of subclinical disease, i.e. ABI less than 0. 0.9. And women typically don't have claudication, so they didn't and I don't there's see a lot. Yeah, And, and there's, there's, you know, problems with the Rose claudication question here. It was great in its day. Um, there are limitations, I should say, okay? So no, that was fascinating case. to me.
1: Our our minority populations, nevertheless, Ah. are underrepresented in all of these trials. And, you know, uh, in the African-American population, the numbers of of patients with PAD, OCLI, and peripheral uh, artery disease, whether it's clinical, subclinical, or whatever, is very high uh, percentage wise.
2: Right. So even my diabetes method numbers, I think, are conservative because we don't have have a lot of African-Americans who have two times the prevalence. Um, We've actually done those numbers in in a separate report. We also don't have Native Americans, also much higher prevalence of the disease, Hispanics, et cetera. We don't have these high-risk populations well represented in the data. And in that regard, I just want to mention that, that this new study that came out the Smolderen study that found a much higher prevalence of PAD overall in those 65 and older and they actually they did diagnostic testing using plasmography in the United Healthcare Medicare Advantage House Calls Optum House Calls program And they found a 28% prevalence of PAD in all of those patients. Now, back calculating the diabetes method, we have an 18% prevalence in those age 65 and older. So there's Mm -hmm. a huge
1: Mm -hmm. gap. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So if, if you just take the diabetes method and look at 2020, it calculates out to 21 million with PAD. If, however, which is which is a huge number compared to eight to twelve. Now, if if you compare that to the Crickey Partners numbers and the Nealer numbers, that's another study. Those are about the only two studies that we
1: have to compare to. The Nealer study was a uh, a large cohort of patients who were insured. There were an insured population. Right. Right. right.
2: And, and that study, I mean, this was an excellent study. I refer to it all the time. That study looked at PAD and CLI incidence and prevalence in those age 40 and older. And what they found was overall prevalence of PAD of about 12%. So if you, if you take those numbers, the percentages from Crickey Partners and from Nealer, and apply them to the U.S. population in 2020, what you get for the Crickey Partners number is 12 to 19 million. And for the kneelers percentages, you get 19 million. And and going back to Cricky Partners, the 12 million on the low end is is the overall 11.7% prevalence in the population over age 40. The 19 million is based on the specific percentages by age group. And they had some, you know, they broke it down a different way than I did. I think it was 70 and over on the high end, but anyway. So that's why you get that range. So if you, if you just look at 21, 19, and 19, the numbers are not that far
1: apart. Right. Yeah, you, I think what you showed, uh, especially when you back calculated into the 1995 data, how, how the diabetes method really uh, corresponded to what their numbers were previous. And right. the number of patients with diabetes, which the other methods were unable to do, we can see how much more of a burden we have of, of per PAD amongst our population uh, today. Exactly. And this is this is a huge, this, this is very eye-opening in many respects. You know, what I would say is that, you know, we cannot sit back and just simply keep using a number that is outdated, right? I mean, numbers are powerful in, in the sense that uh, I will say that when you're looking for change, you're looking for societal change so that we can actually identify PAD, we need to report on accuracy. And I understand that, uh, you know, completing a more contemporary study today, an epidemiological study, looking at PAD prevalence and incidence in a large population would cost millions of dollars, right? And so I think utilizing the tools that you have, like you have done showed us with the diabetes method has been extremely powerful. And Mary, I mean, I, I will say that one of the most astonishing points that you, you that I, when I was reading your article is how much of that population over the age of 65 actually has normal glucose. That was an eye, eye-opening number for exactly. me. You know, less than 18%. Uh, it appears had normal glucose. Is that is that accurate?
2: Yes, that's horrifying. It's accurate no. and horrifying. Um, and and one of the things about diabetes and PAD is the duration of diabetes. The longer you have the diabetes, and the more uncontrolled the HbA1c is, the greater the likelihood of PAD. Correct. So and and we're getting. We're getting um diabetes, we're getting what's called young onset diabetes, which is, I believe it's defined as age 40 and younger. So we're looking at people who are having diabetes for a very, very long time. And that does not bode well for the number, the future number of people with PAD. And,
1: very true. Very true. And,
2: and also, I th- the severity of the disease, because diabetes, I, I've had to sort of become an expert in diabetes along the way here. Um, diabetes has just a massive impact on PAD, as it does on CAD. And it, it's just, it's scary that we have this epidemic of diabetes, and it's so common. And there's so few people with normal
1: glucose. I absolutely agree. And- you know, there's just a couple of extra points uh, when it comes to diabetes I'd like to make, uh, and PAD in, in, in general. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here as an endovascular specialist, and I'm not sitting here to say, I need to put a balloon or a stent in your leg. I'm talking about treating the disease earlier. We have to recognize that the disease process is occurring. This is an easier easy way to do so. We have multiple uh, pharmacotherapies that are available. Exercise and walking programs are so important why does this all matter? Well, I think from a a political standpoint, we have the Patient Reduction Act, HR 2631. You hear numbers like 21, 27 million uh, patients with PAD as a prevalence, and that can actually impact change. And so I think if we are able to stem the tide, so to speak, a lot of patients can do a lot better in the long run, We really don't want the patients to present with critical limb ischemia. You know, I think we want to be able to prevent it before it gets to that point. And, you know, the other aspects that I will just say from a screening point of view, and we were talking about diabetes, ABI's are still not quite prevalent in clinics, you know, and yes, there are some limitations to ABI's. There are limitations to ABI's in patients with diabetes. There are limitations in patients with chronic kidney disease in that there can be some non-compressibility, but I think it's a good screening tool even today to help us drive, and also putting your fingers on the pulse, just checking the pulse, drive a lot of change.
2: It's better than not screening. Correct. And, And talking about the whole political situation, if you look at 21 million with PAD or 26 million, say 21 to 26 million, that's more than coronary heart disease, that's 18 million. All cancers combined are 17 million. Everybody's heard of cancer. Everybody's heard of heart disease. Nobody has ever heard of PAD. And this is one reason that we need more accurate numbers.
1: That's yes, un- absolutely true, Mary. One more question I have for you, and, and that specifically pertains to now we have a number that I think we can reliably count on in the 20 million 22 million, 26 million range of prevalence of PAD. Now, where do we stand? And this may be, you know, a question that you may not be able to answer. Extrapolation of these to the world. You said, you you mentioned earlier that you have been working with different countries and, and trying to assess this. You know, I could only imagine the astronomical number that we could potentially get if we utilize this method in other countries.
2: We, okay. Being me, I um, have estimated PAD in each of the major markets in Western Europe, in India, in China, in Japan, in all the countries of South America, Mexico, Canada, etc. Okay, and those are the quote-unquote biggest markets, if you will, or the biggest or would have the highest prevalence, and you will frequently see there's been two articles, the most recent that have looked at worldwide prevalence of PAD, and you will frequently see the 200 million, which is the most recent. And and that's a good number, but I can tell you just from the countries I mentioned, I don't recall exactly, it's higher, and I wanna say it's the 300 to 400 million. The leading country is China. They are massively aged, and they're also massively diabetic. Neck and neck with China is India.
1: It's a massively
2: epidemic. diabetic. Yes, it is. It is not limited. It, it diabetes is a global epidemic, and PAD is following diabetes right along. Now, if you if you estimated, um, if I estimated for the countries in the Middle East, you would get huge numbers because they are also massively diabetic. Mexico, one of the most diabetic countries in the world. Has a, huge, has a huge prevalence of both diabetes and PAD. I don't recall offhand what it is because I haven't looked at that for a while. It is, it is not, and in fact, these, these papers that have been published recently, looking at the worldwide, also pointed out that women were at higher risk, particularly women in the less developed or developing countries, they, they have some other term that they use to, to describe them, that the disease is really running rampant in in the develop i'll just call them the developing countries and particularly in women and again it's diabetes
1: yeah and i'm sure uh, around the globe there are a, there's a large population of patients who seek treatment late late in the game right uh, that's the case uh, specifically for that well mary and i i really enjoyed this discussion with you i think you opened a lot of eyes This was an ingenious study. I really appreciate having this time to speak with you and I look forward to learning more from you in the future. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you. Thanks a lot.
1: And with that, uh, we'll we'll end our discussion. And I want to thank the audience for, for listening to this very important discussion on the current U.S. prevalence of peripheral artery disease.
0: That does it for this episode of Vascular Voices. Thank you to Dr. Pradeep Nair and Mary Yost for being our guests. To read Mary Yost's research on PAD, visit the April issue of Vascular Disease Management at our website, vasculardiseasemanagement.com. To find more podcast episodes, visit our website, or you can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks for listening.